Yeah, if you, uh, if you have not seen the parent fail videos that we've put online that Ben and his team have produced, you need to go check that, that out on our Facebook page. My, my favorite one is one that, that Ben came up with the idea because uh, he and his wife, Allie, they decided to write down for a week just the weird things that they say over the course of a week. And it was inspired by a moment where they said to one of their kids, stop licking the blinds. And, and so they kept writing down just weird things that you say throughout the week as a parent. It's one of the funniest videos. Go check it out on the, the Facebook page. But those, those parent fail videos and this series has inspired a whole lot of conversation uh, online and, and amongst my friends. Like we've had a lot of conversations backstage and things like that. But uh, this past week uh, with my gym buddies, we all started telling parent fail stories. And I'm convinced it should actually just be dad fail because like 90% of the time it's, it's dad fails. And then one of the funny stories that came out of that was another friend of mine named Ben. He's got four kids. He was rushing, trying to get his kids out of the house and off to school one day. And one of his kids uh, had a cold. She had a cold. And when you have multiple children, you don't care. You send your kids to school anyway. You're like, let them take the germs. But uh, he, he, sent, he sends her off to school, but he's a good dad. So he gives, her, he gives her some medicine before she goes, but he accidentally gave her Benadryl. And so, so she ended up going to like the school nurse like seven times that day because she kept falling asleep in, in class parent fail. Good job, you know. And so, so if right now, let me give you a few disclaimers. If right now you're going, man, parenting series, I don't know if I'm in for that. You're maybe going, I, I don't have kids yet, but I hope to. I, I, I dream to one day or something like that. I would say this, one of the number one comments that Jim and I receive from people is, man, I wish I would have heard this stuff. And then you can fill in the blank. 25 years ago, 10 years ago, five years ago, whatever that is. So if at any point in your life you're going, yeah, I think I want to have kids, this will be one of those times to, to take some notes, file this away for when you do have kids. It'll pay off in, in the long run. If you're going, man, but my kids are grown, they're almost out of the house, or they've been out of the house for a long time, this isn't going to be relevant to me. Yes, it is, because we're going to be looking at these overarching 40,000 foot principles, these things that still take effect in your role as a parent in your child's life, whether your child is five years old or whether your child is 65 years old. So the, the, the last group may be those who are going, I don't, I don't have kids, can't have kids, don't want to have kids, whatever that is. Kids aren't in your life. You're going, this isn't going to be relevant to me. It really will be. We're going to, again, again, be looking at these principles that are in play in our lives, regardless of whether we have children or not. It's just that parenting is kind of symptomatic of these bigger things. And so this applies to all of us. And, and, and the last disclaimer I would give is this. Parenting is one of those places it's so sensitive. It's one of those areas where it's like, man, if we're going to talk about this, this is going to be difficult because parenting is one of those places where a lot of us, we have a lot of regrets, we have a lot of guilt, we feel like we're failures, that's why it's called parent fail, all that kind of thing. And one of the beautiful things about God is this, he always picks us up where we are, not where we should have been, or not where we wish we currently were or are. He picks us up wherever we are and he takes us from that point on and that's called grace and it's and it's beautiful. And so so let's dive in. My, my name is Scott in case you didn't know and I got four kids. I got kids from 13, 11, 7 all the way down to three and a half and at the more I've the longer I've been a parent the more I've come to realize how much I don't know about being a parent and, and parenting is hard and it's difficult and it's overwhelming. In fact my definition of parenting is simply this parenting the single most overwhelming task given by God to men and women in the history of the universe. Now, that may feel like an overstatement. You may go, that's actually not true. Oh, that's fine. That, that, I'm just telling you, that's how it feels to me, and I'm guessing that's probably how it feels to a lot of us who are, who are parents. The Bible has a lot to say about parenting. We've talked about this verse specifically a lot of times. Ephesians 6.4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And again, we've, we've broken the, that verse down. We've done series about that, that verse. But 
I mean, at the end of the day, what that verse really means is this. Parents are charged with the task of training their children to become the kind of people who, number one, see the world the way Jesus sees it, and number two, will interact with the world the way Jesus does. I mean, that's a, that's a tall order, to see the world the way Jesus sees it and interact with the world the way Jesus does. So consequently, there's nothing that makes me feel more overwhelmed or inadequate or unworthy than my role as a father. That task is huge. Now, let me let you in on a little secret. Every parent feels that way. We all feel that way. This is such a heavy burden. This is such a high calling. This is, this is something we all walk around. Like no parent walks around and really believes they've really got this parenting thing just absolutely figured out, totally nailed. And even the people who write the books and write the blogs and they raise their kids only on grass-fed yak from the hills of New Zealand with goji berries and never let them watch television, whatever that is. Oftentimes those folks are the folks that are the most insecure parents you'll ever meet and they just project their insecurity as overconfidence on everybody else we all feel this way there's nothing that creates more pressure nothing that leaves us feeling at a loss more than parenting parenting is hard and we're all in this together so even again if you don't have kids God commands his church to share everything to have everything in common and so we're called together as a church to be concerned and to love and care for the next generations that are coming up behind us whether there are children or not that's what the church is called to do so as a parent though Those moments where you look in the mirror and you just go, why can't I figure this out? And those moments where you look in the mirror and go, I feel like such a failure as a parent, they abound. I mean, they just happen all the time, even in the simplest things. Like literally for us right now, we got a three and a half year old Bo who just refuses to potty train, refuses, could not care less about it. He'll literally poop his pants and walk over to uh, this, this drawer and he'll pull out uh, the drawer. He'll take the, the pull-up out. He'll take the changing pad out and he'll take, he'll take the, the baby wipes out. He'll lay it all down neatly and then he'll lay down on it and he'll look at you like, take care of this. <laughs> and if I'm honest, it makes me want to choke him. It does. I'm like, bro, listen to me. Daddy's been changing diapers for 13 long years. And daddy didn't want to do this anymore. And all the effort it took to do that, you could have gone to the bathroom far quicker than, 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 than you did that. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm just sitting there looking and I'll look at my wife and go, hey, the other three kids are potty trained, right? Like Landry, she's 13. We did this with her, right? And the 11-year-old, we did this with him. And the 7-year-old, we did this. Like they're all potty trained, right? And, and one of the things we do as parents is we block things out. And I've looked at her because I've said... I. I literally have no memory of potty training the other children. And my wife told me last night, she's like, there's a reason for that. You didn't do it. You didn't do any of it. Oh, that's why, you know. You're right. You're you're right. But why is it we can't figure this out? Now, here's what what you know is going to happen, okay? My email inbox, I haven't checked it all weekend, but I'm sure it's going to fill up with tips on how to potty train your child. People with advice are going to tell me this is how to do it. Listen, I, you probably come across something I've never heard of, but for the most part, I've probably heard of all those things. The reality is I'm tired and I just want it to magically happen without any effort on my behalf. That's what I re- that's what I, re- I want to go home today after church and my wife to greet me in the driveway with like lunch and to go, you know, Bo's potty trained. It magically happened. That's what I would love to happen. I know that's not going to happen. And here's the reality. As parents, sometimes we get so tired. That's the way we approach parenting in general. We want it to just magically happen without any effort on our behalf because we're tired and we know that's not the way it works. So, so here's what I want to do in this series. I want to take a look at three big, huge struggles that we face as parents, three big parent fails, three big principles that we need to get in place and we need to deal with. Because here's the reality about parenting, not just parenting, but life, is we tend to be very reactionary, right? 
We, we find ourselves in these moments where it's like a conflict and it feels like you're literally in a battle and the, and the bullets are flying over your head and you're hunkered down in the foxhole. And what you do when you're in those conflicts is you just react. And oftentimes as parents, what we do is react out of emotion. And if we're really honest, we, those are the moments that have the highest potential for being the moments we look back at with so much regret. Right? As parents, those moments where we just react in the moment out of emotion, those are the moments we look back and go, oh, man, I wish I hadn't have said that. Man, I wish I hadn't have done that. And so what we really need is we need to be able to take a time out and create a game plan, not of, not of methods, but rather of principles. And we understand this in sports, right? Like you don't game plan while you're playing. You just have to act while you're playing. You call a timeout and you go, okay, what's our objective? How are we going to move the ball down the field? What, what's our methodology? What's the play that we're going to run? But you have to remove yourself from the conflict in order to do that. And so that's what I want this series to be. I really want this to be this kind of opportunity for us to remove ourselves from the conflict, think big picture so that when we find ourselves in the game, when we find ourselves in the conflict, we'll react out of these things called principles, which are so important. Because a principle is a fundamental truth that serves as the foundation for a system of belief or behavior. Marcus Aurelius said it this way, there's no such thing as a random action. Everything we do is based on a principle of belief. Whether we understand it or are cognizant of it or not, everything we do is based on something that we believe to be true. So if in this series you came with your pen and your pencil ready for like step-by-step parenting advice, like color by number, like do this and you're guaranteed great results type of parenting, that's not what you're gonna get. We're not going to get all into all the methods. What we are going to talk about is the principles because the principles dictate the methods. So picture this, okay? Some of us have been there as parents. Some of us have been there as kids. Some of us have been there as, as, in, both of these, in both of those scenarios. So you're in the grocery store. You're in like King Supers. You're in Whole Foods, Costco, whatever that is. And you've got a couple kids and, and your kids are just blowing up in the, in the grocery store. They're just melting down. They're, 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 you know, they've already clipped somebody in the Achilles tendon with a grocery cart. Somebody's mad at you. They've, they've thrown cans of beans down the aisle. They've caused, you know, cleanup on aisle three, seven, and nine, like all of them, you know. And, and you can feel all the stares of all the other shoppers just turning your direction. You can see the dread in their eyes as you approach them and you feel this condemnation and judgment coming towards you. And they don't say it out loud, but what you think they're saying to you through their, their eye contact is, why did you breed? Like, why, why, did, why did you do this? And then why did you bring your progeny to this public place that, that, that's, and now they're disrupting our lives too? Like, sh- you should just keep them at home. And so under the weight of that condemnation and judgment that may be real or perceived, you just abandon the grocery cart, you, you gather the kids kicking and screaming, throw them in the car, and yell at them all the way home. You ever been there? Yeah. <laughs> Amen. Yeah, somebody... Hey, you've, been, you've been there. You, you think about the ball fields, and you've worked with, you've worked with your, your son on his swing just, just endlessly, and he's now struck out for the third time in one game, and he, he, he looks at you because he always looks at you after he strikes out, and you give him that look of disappointment, and he drops his head and hangs his head in shame and goes back to the dugout. You invite friends over who also have children, but their children are perfect. Their children always get along. Their children are well-mannered. Their children like one another and respect their parents. And you invite them over for dinner, and it's like this big mirror looking back at you going, this is, your, your, your family's not as good as theirs. And so they sit down, and you say, pass the salt, and, and their children actually hand you the salt. Your kids throw the salt shaker across the room. Your kids start blowing up and yelling at each other like they always do. And then when, in, when you're exhausted at the end of the evening, and you say goodbye to your friends, and you shut the door you turn around and all your kids brace themselves because they know what's coming you're going to leave nothing but scorched earth behind them as you remind them of their inadequacies and how ashamed you feel 
You're playing golf with an old friend and you were hoping that nobody knew about your 16-year-old son being expelled from school. It's about the 12th hole before he works up the courage to bring it up when he says, hey, I heard about your son. And then all you can think about for the next week is what are people going to think about me now that they know? Your daughter wins the science fair. If you're really honest, you kind of won the science fair because <laughs> you, you, you did more of the volcano than she did. And when she, when she steps up there to receive the blue ribbon, if those still exist, you know, you, you feel all the, all the admiration and, and you get all the smiles from all the other parents. And, and if you're really honest, your heart starts beating faster and you just feel really, really good. Your son, who's 36 years old, gets a high-profile job that you can finally tell your friends about. And so that's what you do. You go around the street telling everybody about your son and the job that he got, and everybody forgot that you had a son because you haven't talked about him in years. Your daughter gets into a great school, full-ride scholarship. They even write like a blurb about her in the local paper, and you go to bed that night feeling fulfilled. Your son wins the most pride awards of any elementary student in the history of the school. Never gotten a bad grade, has never gotten in trouble, has never gone to the principal's office, has always gotten glowing reports, and you just wonder why other parents don't ask you for advice more often. <laughs> right? Why, why is that? Now, here's the, here's the question. I just painted eight small pictures. Did I, did I paint four pictures of parenting wins and four pictures of parent fails? Nope. I painted eight pictures of parenting fails. Because all of them, some of them very clearly and some of, some of them subtly, are examples of this thing that's such a dangerous trap and it's called identity parenting. Identity parenting is this, when you're attempting to gain and shape your identity through your child for good or for bad. Now again, you don't have to be a parent for this to apply. Take child out of the equation. When you're trying to gain your identity, shape your identity through anyone or anything other than God for good or for bad, that, that's not a good thing. So listen, there's nothing wrong with being upset with your children's behavior in the grocery store, but if their behavior becomes the primary source of your identity, your children are in a lot of trouble and so are you. There's nothing wrong with being proud of your children's performance, but if my child's performance becomes the primary place that I go in order to free, for me to find my worth and my value, that's really bad for my kids and that's really bad for me. See, for 13 years of being a parent of four children, I, I can just tell you I have a lot of struggles as a parent. Like, I couldn't even number all of them, but all of them, I've come to realize, come back to this root issue called identity parenting, and it happens so quickly and it happens so easily. Listen, I live in a small town where at least it feels like everyone knows me. Everybody knows what I do. Everybody knows my kids. So when my kids do something good or bad in public, my thoughts a lot of times immediately go to what do people think about me based on what my child just did. You ever been there? Yeah. And I have to be honest, I, you know, in all these years of being a parent, I think I've read like three parenting books. Like three. And it's because a lot of times I, they're all about methodology, but they don't talk about the overarching principles. But I came across this, this book this past year, this past fall, that really has not only revolutionized just parenting and the way I think about it, but really like life and the way I think about it. It has this very clever title. It's called Parenting. And uh, I mean, it just jumps out at you. And it's written by this guy named Paul Tripp. And I actually have met him a couple times. We've spoken at the same conference a couple times. And it is, it is one of the best books I've ever read. So look, go on Amazon, grab, grab this book, because here's the beautiful thing about this book. It's not about methods. It's about principles. It's a really, really great book. And in this book, he has a chapter on identity parenting, and he says this, if you're not resting as a parent in your identity in Christ, you will look for your identity in your children. If you're not resting as a parent in your identity in Christ, you will, it's going to happen, look for your identity in your children. 
So here's the interesting thing that, that God does. So in, in looking at that letter to the Ephesians that we've spent so much time on, whenever we teach about marriage and family and children, we always go to like Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 6. But before God ever tells us what we're supposed to do as parents, he always tells us who we are as his children. So Ephesians chapter 1 actually says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he's blessed us in the beloved. So, so before we ever start trying to apply anything as parents, we have to understand who we are as God's children. And if we don't get that order correct, we will fall into this trap of identity parenting. And here's the thing about identity parenting. It is normal, okay? It's normal. We all do it. It's also miserable. And at the end of the day, it's crushing. It's crushing. Like, it, it is normal, okay? We do this with so many things in life. Whenever we move God off of center in our life, when we, whenever we move God out of the ultimate position in our life, what, what that is is it becomes a replacement religion. That's what I call it, it's a replacement religion. And it could be anything. It could be weightlifting. It could be running. It could be academics. It could be your job. It could be your marriage. And it could definitely be your kids. But whenever we, whenever we embrace a replacement religion, that always leads to one of two places. And we've talked about this before. That always leads to either arrogance or despair and if we live long enough and we embrace a replacement religion long enough it'll ultimately lead to both of those places at different points in our life so when the replacement religion becomes parenting here's the way that oftentimes works it, 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 it's a parent who goes oh I, I embrace the the latest book or the latest fad parenting thing from you know baby wise to free range parenting or whatever it is that's a thing by the way google it free range parenting whatever that is, and you take the methodology and you follow the steps and you work the plan and you do the thing and you do it religiously and you do it perfectly and you apply it to this child and you actually get the results that the book said you would get if you did this perfectly and you sit back at the end of the day and go, look at how good I am at this. And then what happens is oftentimes it's well-intentioned. People become like evangelistic about it, but it comes across as arrogance, you start going, hey, you should do this because I did this and it worked really, really good with my kid and so you should do it. And oftentimes what that does is that, make pe that makes people not want to be around you, just so you know. Because for a lot of us what happens is we tried the same book, we tried the same methodology, we read the same blog and we followed all the same steps and we applied it to this kid over here and it did not work. That kid still comes at us with a knife every Tuesday. Like it, do, it doesn't, it didn't work. And so what that does is that leaves us with, man, something's wrong with me or something's wrong with them. And that leads us to despair. That's where replacement religion always leads. And eventually it always leads to both of, both of those places. So we have to understand that. Not only is it normal, it's very easy for us to fall into this trap, but it's also miserable. Trying to gain your identity from your children is a miserable place to try to find it. Listen, I love my kids. I love most of your kids. I, I, but at the end of the day, kids cannot give you what only God can give you. And here's why. This is, write this down. This is going to be revolutionary. Here's why. Because they're kids. And guess what? They're just like us, which means they're sinful. And they're broken. And what I'm about to say is going to bother some of you, but it's theologically undeniable, and I think it's, it plays out practically in life all the time. But here's the reality. Our kids aren't sinful because they sin. They're sinful because they're sinners. 
You see the difference? See, there's one worldview that says, no, kids are born good, and then these bad influences show up, and then they start doing bad things. No, then there's the biblical worldview that says, no, 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 we're all born broken. We're all born bent in a direction towards sin. And I could list a million scriptures. We could walk all the way through the Bible to prove that ad nauseum. Or I could just paint the picture of a scenario that a lot of us have at least witnessed, if not experienced. Because here's, here's what happens for some of us, all right? The first time we become a parent, some of us fall into this trap of believing that we have spawned the first perfect human in the history of the universe. Like, look at her. Look at him. He's so cute. He's awesome. And other people, they come around, they're like, yeah, he's okay. And you think they're just delusional. And, and you're, like, you're like, no, he's beautiful. He's perfect. He's awesome. We'll call him Trevor, all right? And little Trevor is just great. What first-time parents do is, is we, 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 we sanitize the house. We make people wear hazmat suits before they come in. Ten, you know, plunges of hand sanitizer before you get anywhere near baby Trevor. And, and baby Trevor, we, we have to protect him at all times. And so all the wall sockets have the coverings on them. And all the doors have all the locks on them and all that kind of stuff. And then one, one day, baby Trevor, he gets, he gets mobile just a little bit. He, get, he gets mobile. And, and, and my kids, um, they oftentimes would do that army crawl thing without using their legs first. Landry, my oldest, she actually just rolled. Before she ever, I don't know what that means. Before she's very artistic, maybe that's part of it. But she she rolled everywhere she went. But they get mobile, and so baby Trevor gets mobile. And the weird thing is, is one day baby Trevor gets mobile, and you notice baby, baby Trevor's headed over towards that wall socket that your moron husband didn't cover. That that one over there, and and baby Trevor's headed that direction. You think, well, it, it's just a coincidence that he's heading that direction. So you go, no, no, Trevor, no, no. And baby Trevor. For some reason, when you say the word no, there seems to be a correlation to his speed. <laughs> he like speeds up when you say no, but that, I mean, baby Trevor's perfect, so it couldn't be, there couldn't be a correlation. And so, so he keeps going that direction, and so you're getting a little scared now, and so you, you start to raise your voice, but you read in a book that if you raise your voice, the kid will become a serial killer, and so you try not, <laughs> you try not to, to raise, so now it's like, no, no, Trevor, no, you just get higher. It's not really raising your voice, you get higher. No, no, Trevor, we might, and, and then now baby Trevor has found an ink pen that, again, your moron husband left laying on the ground, might as well be a machete, you know, and... <laughs> And baby Trevor now has the ink pen and he's near the wall socket and you're going, what is baby Trevor doing? And baby Trevor has this smile. <laughs> and it's like a maniacal smile. And so now you're running across the room and it's like slow-mo in a movie, no! And baby Trevor proceeds to jab the pen into the light socket and shorts out the entire kitchen. Now, why does baby Trevor do that? Write this down. Because baby Trevor is evil, okay? <laughs> Some of you are waiting for me to amend that statement. It's not going to happen. So and here, here's the thing. As parents, here's what we see. Oftentimes we see, the, we have these moments of clarity. We're like, oh no, they're like us. They're like us. They're bent towards the wrong thing. Look, no parent has ever had to sit down with their toddler and gone, repeat after me. No. Say no. Nobody's ever taught their kid to say no. You know why? You don't have to. They say no way before they say yes, right? Now, why do I say all that? Because this has the, if we, if we understand this and we really get this, this has the potential to revolutionize the way that we raise our kids. Because if we understand that our children's behavior is a direct result of a condition, listen, that you and I have no ability to change, that will change the way that we shepherd our children with grace and truth. We can't change their hearts. 
We can't do what only God can do. And when I understand that my children's behavior is a direct result of his or her condition, the same one that I was born with, it affords me the opportunity to love them well. But if I think that I can change my child on the inside by breaking their will on the outside and demanding that they conform to rules at the expense of internal transformation, it'll become a train wreck and it'll become miserable because here, here's the danger. When all of our emphasis becomes external conformity with a lack of concern for what's actually going on on the inside, when all of our efforts are centered around behavior modification, here's the danger. There's a real danger that my child will do a really good job of modifying their behavior at the expense of any internal transformation. Jesus called this cleaning the outside of the cup while neglecting to clean the inside of the cup. You see what I'm saying? If all of our emphasis is on external conformity to rules without any conversation about internal motivations, we run the risk of creating hypocrites. Children who become really good at conforming on the outside, but on the inside, what are they doing? They're biding their time until they're out from underneath of our regime. This really interesting thing happened back in my hometown. My wife went to uh, this small high school that I got kicked out of in ninth grade. They were like, yeah, no more with you, you know? And there was a, there was a lot of rules at that high school, hence the reason I got, I got booted. But it was this interesting dynamic. About four years later, when a lot of people who had been perfect students at that high school, like they were never in detention with me, they never went to in-school suspension with me, they never got suspended like I did, and they never got expelled like I did. Like they never got in trouble at all while they were in school. Four years later, they, a bunch of them went off to college, and you know what they did? They went crazy. And everybody was dumbfounded. All the teachers, all the administrators, all the parents are like, that is so strange how these good kids all of a sudden turned into rebellious kids. No, they didn't. They went from being hypocrites to being authentic. You see the difference? They just took the mask off when they went to college. They just went, oh, we don't have to pretend anymore. This is great. So we run the danger, and all we do is focus on external conformity to rules to creating little hypocrites, little, little actors. Now, the other danger when all we do is focus on external conformity is in certain kids, we'll create rebels, because some kids actually are too strong-willed to be inauthentic. Like, they will not pretend for us. And so what they'll do is they'll view every rule we throw their direction as like batting practice. <laughs> throw me another one. I'll hit that one out of the park, too. <laughs> I'll break that one, too. And we call them, you know, strong-willed. No, it's called sinful. <laughs> stubbornly sinful. Like, some of us are stubbornly sinful. So, so not only is identity parenting normal... It's a miserable way to interact with our kids. We run the risk of creating hypocrites or rebels, but it's also, at the end of the day, it's really, really crushing. And here's what I mean. We are all natural-born worshipers. We all are born with this, this, this understanding, this longing that we need to find someone or something outside of ourselves to tell us who we are to tell us our identity and find our value and our worth. And, and when we look around, oftentimes one of the quickest places to find someone who might be willing to do that is, is our kids. And so that's why it's important for us to circle back to this verse over and over again. Jeremiah 2.13 says, For my people have committed two evils. Number one, they've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So because we're all born naturally to worship, we're all born with like, I, I like to think of it like we're all born with this bucket, and the bucket's empty. 
All right? And we look inside of ourselves and go, there's nothing inside of me that I can find that says who I am or what I'm worth or who created me or what, what's most important. And I can think all the positive thoughts in the world and it's not going to give me that. So I know I have to go outside of myself to find this. And so what I do is I, I look around and, and a lot of times we see our kids and we go, okay, you can provide me with my worth. So what I need you to do is I need you to perform on my behalf. I need you to be the kind of kid that will make me feel valuable as a parent. So we take that from them and then we go away for a little while and that's good for a minute but the problem is we're a broken cistern they're a broken cistern we both leak and so this is not sustainable but we don't learn this very quickly and so we look and we go you know what that's not enough and so we go back and we go I need you to up your game and your performance in the classroom because these grades are mediocre and I need you to make me feel like I'm not a mediocre parent and so we'll they'll they'll do they'll do it They'll go, okay, I will, I'll give that to you. Is that what you need from me? I'll give that to you. And they'll do it for a while. And then we'll take and we'll go and we'll eventually look and go, you know what? Still not enough. And we'll go back and go, okay, I need you on the, on the field. I need you on the field to play in athletics to be exceptional because I'm still wrestling with the inadequacies that I feel like I've struggled with my whole life for not living up to my potential. So I need you to give that to me. And so, so they'll do it. They'll, they'll work really hard on the field. And then we'll go away and we'll go, yeah, you know what? Still not enough. And then we'll finally go back to the same well. And guess what we'll discover? They have nothing left to give. And it's crushing. And it's unsustainable. And it leaves them feeling empty. It leaves us oftentimes feeling empty. And it leaves us feeling angry. And we make demands of them that they cannot fulfill. And at the end of the day, it crushes them. Because parenting is a miserable, soul-crushing place to find your value to find your worth. It's probably one of the worst places you can possibly go to try to find your identity. Trying to get from our kids or anyone or anything, what we, listen to me, what we already have in Christ leaves us feeling absolutely broken and empty inside. So here's the principle, here's the good news, here's what we, here's what we can embrace. It's this, when we live out of our identity as God's children, we don't try to get our identity from our children. You with me? When we live out of our identity as God's children, we don't have to try to get our identity from our children. So if that all resonates, if that all makes sense, you may be going, okay, but how do I like, diagnose when and if I'm doing that? Well, there's always like little traps. There's always like little pitfalls that we can fall into that are indicators that we're falling into this trap of identity parenting. And one of those traps is that of success. And I'm convinced that this trap of success is the reason why we have the everybody gets a trophy, everybody gets a ribbon mentality in both academia and on the field of play. Like, like, like let's, what we do, let's be honest, let's just be honest, okay? The reason why we want to lower standards so far so that every child can get over them is not out of love and concern for our children's self-esteem. It's not that. You know what it is? It's our own selfishness. Because we cannot handle the idea of our children being a loser in a situation without us embracing the identity of being a loser in all things. We can't stomach the idea of our child actually seeing a scoreboard where they come up on the short end of the stick because that scoreboard's an indicator, a mirror back to us saying, you're a loser as a parent. So it doesn't even have anything to do with our children and we're certainly not being loving to them by lowering standards and telling them they're all exceptional because guess what? They know they're not. They know they're not. They can look around and they can determine, no, actually, Johnny's better than me at soccer. It's not a big deal. He's better than me at soccer. We're the ones who make a big deal out of it. You with me? So whenever we set like lower standards so that kids can get over the bar, we can just know right out of the gate, oh, that's us falling into an identity parenting trap. Now, flip side of the same coin, this is why we have ultra elite traveling soccer teams for four-year-olds. 
right? Because there's apparently no four-year-olds in the state of Colorado that my kid can play soccer against, so we got to get them on a plane and wear their elite jerseys and fly them to California to play other elite soccer players. No, you, you know why your four-year-old plays soccer primarily? Most of them? For the snack. <laughs> that's, why, that's why most of them do. Now, every now and then you come across the one phenom who's better than everybody else, and that's awesome for him. But why do we create? What, why do we create? Why, why do we mortgage our house so that we can spend $10,000 so that our nine-year-old can go play baseball against other nine-year-olds on the other side of the country? Why do we do that? Because we want the title of elite as a parent. It's not out of love and concern for them. Now, other generations had this figured out. Somehow we've, we have, we've found this place called insanity and we're running down it. And listen, I, I live in the tension between the everybody gets a ribbon, you know, rec leagues where nobody even keeps score and mortgage your house and raise all your other children on the, on the field of play that one child's playing on. I, I live in that tension. My 11-year-old, he, he plays on a tournament baseball team. He wants to, he, he qualified for nationals and Olympic weightlifting. He wants to go to Atlanta this summer to do that. So listen, I understand. I live in this tension, but we will not find sanity while we're trying to gain our identity through our children's performance and success. And I could have used anything else, but sports is the low-hanging fruit. And listen, just so you understand, I love sports. I think sports are awesome. But listen, when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, ultimately that good thing becomes a destructive thing, and sports so easily becomes that. Another trap is that of reputation. And I fall into this one all the time. If you find yourself constantly worried about what people think of you based on what your child does for good or for bad, that's identity parenting. Paul Tripp in his book, he says it this way, God didn't give you your children to build your reputation. That one hit me right between the eyes when I read it. Like, ouch, so true. And I struggle with this one a lot. When one of my kids gets in trouble in, in kids ministry, you know, the first thing that goes through my mind, what will my staff, what will those volunteers, what will these people think about me if I can't even get my kid through one hour of church and I'm the preacher? When one of my kids acts up out in the lobby at one of our campuses, I feel like, it's probably not true, but I feel like thousands of eyes turn on me and watch me in that moment, and I just want to crawl under a rock. Anybody else ever felt that way? Even though I know, I know that I gain more credibility as, as a preacher and as a parent when everybody can go, he's just like us. I don't know what I'm doing, just like all of us don't know what, what we're doing. I struggled for a long time. My, my friend Paul, our executive pastor around here, he, he tells our staff all the time, when you have um, babies in diapers and in car seats, he refers to that stage of life as the dark ages. <laughs> and it's, it's so accurate because I remember feeling like that back then where it's just like, you know what, let's not go anywhere. Let's just pull the shades down and sing sad songs tonight, you know. <laughs> let's not try to go to a restaurant because we know how that goes. Let's not do that at all. Now, the reality is it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily get better when they get older because people will have some grace for, you know, the two-year-old who throws a drink across the, the restaurant. Not as much for the 13-year-old right? Another trap I fall into all the time is the trap of control. And the way this manifests itself in, in my life is we'll load up all the kids to go to some event or someone's house or something like that. We'll load them all up in the, the I almost said the minivan, but we wouldn't have one of those, the, the vehicle. And uh, we, we have one of those. And <laughs> we load them up into the vehicle. And what I start doing is I start handing out punishments before crimes have even been committed. <laughs> You've done this too? Good. That feels good to me. Where you do, I'll, I'll launch into a speech. Okay, so when this happens, this is going to happen. I'll take this away, and then you won't be able to do this. And, this and, and if you, so help me if you do this. And they're all looking at me like, we don't even have our seatbelts on. <laughs> we didn't do anything. 
why are you being so neurotic, Dad? You know, and my kids are better than me because if I was a kid in that situation, I would go, well, what's the point in even trying to obey if we're already in trouble? And then I would just break all the rules anyway, right? That's my, why do I do that? Because that's my attempt to control the outcomes. It has nothing to do with the good of my children. It has everything do, to do with me trying to preserve my sanity and my reputation and the way I feel. Not even giving them the opportunity to be obedient. I'm just assuming they won't be. Another trap is doing versus being. And this is the emphasis on external conformity without ever having any discussion about internal transformation. I got one kid who shall remain nameless who has, ne- has never gotten a bad report from any teacher, coach, parent, nobody. And we've sat down in those, those parent-teacher conferences and they always like push away from the table and go, we don't know what to tell you, he's just an angel. And we're like, last name Nickel. You got the, like, you, which kid are you talking about? You, you can't be talking about that kid because at home, that kid breaks rules all the time. So what that, what that tells me is this one kid in particular is really good at putting on that mask and conforming to the rules on the outside, but on the inside, we get to see it at home. So we have to pay attention. What are the internal motivations of his heart? And we have to have those conversations because we don't want to create hypocrites or rebels. Here's another one, taking things personally. I know it feels like your 17-year-old daughter wakes up every day and dreams up a strategy for making your life miserable. (laughs) It's probably not what she's actually doing. It It might be. It's probably not. And even if it is, again, we have to remember that's born out of a condition that we can't change. The same one that we were born with. Right? Your your one-and-a-half-year-old does not have an elaborate scheme to make you the most tired human being in the history of the universe. They accomplish that outcome really well, but that's not what they're trying to do. We take it personally, and the way we know when we're taking it personally is when we start saying things like, how could you do this to me? Or we'll say things like, don't you know how much I do for you? And when I take things personally, my go-to emotion is anger. And when I get angry, I rarely give my children what they need. I tend to give them what I think they deserve. Maybe you can identify with that. Now look at that sentence. Does that sound anything like what God has done for us? Nope. Rather, what has God done for us? He has not given us what we deserve. He has given us what we need, which is this amazing thing called grace. Look, the one thing that kids need most is the one thing that we cannot do for them or in them. They need Jesus to take hold of their hearts and begin working in them, on them, and through them. See, here's the great news. Jesus is a great Savior, which means we don't have to be. This is how we can rest in our identity in Christ and stop trying to gain our identity from our children. When I know that in Christ I'm secure, I don't have to walk in insecurity as a parent. When I know that in Christ I'm loved, I don't have to chase after the feeling of being loved at all times by my kids. When I know that in Christ I'm enough, I don't have to seek to measure up through parenting or through anything else. When I know that in Christ I'm significant, I don't have to demand that my children or anyone else give me significance. When I know what Jesus has done for me, I don't demand people do things for me. And the list goes on and on and on. See, parenting is a high calling, but God doesn't call his people to do something that he doesn't also equip them with the grace and the mercy and the strength to accomplish. When we realize our identity as God's children, we don't try to get our identity from our children. I was reading in Romans chapter 8 this week. It's probably my favorite chapter in the Bible. And verses 15 and 16 really stood out. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into 
fear. In other words, the, the currency of fear and slavery is not the way we interact with our Heavenly Father. It's a different kind of relationship. But you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry. Here's the word Abba in Aramaic. That's the most intimate word you could use for fathers, like Daddy or Papa. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. A couple nights ago, I was awakened in the middle of the night with this very familiar sound that if you're a parent and you hear it once, you'll recognize it right out of the gate, the sound of a, of a child with croup. It was my, my three-and-a-half-year-old bow. Uh, that sound is kind of like a barking seal. I mean, it's a really bizarre sound. It'll wake you, wake you up really fast. And, and Allie gathers up Bo and takes him to the bathroom, and he starts throwing up because he's, he's gagging, can't catch his breath, and he can't breathe, and he's panicking. And so we've done this so many times. Like, we've got this routine down. So, like, I, I'm in charge of the sheets and the jammies and all that kind of stuff, and she runs the, the shower and closes the door so that he can, he can get the steam, you know, going through his lungs and all that kind of thing. She sits there with him, and she tries to get him to catch his breath but he can't catch his breath he's panicking and it's not working and so so we know the next step there's like two more steps and and the the last one is go to the hospital and so the next one is wrap him up in a blanket take him outside in the cool air and see if that works and so I wrap him up in the blanket it's one o'clock in the morning go out on the back porch and I'm I'm holding Bo and he's he can't breathe and he's panicking have you ever felt that way circumstances you don't understand and you can't catch your breath and you're starting to panic and all you really need is your father to just like hold you and in that moment I'm holding him and I'm trying to get him to like sync up his breathing with mine and as we're sitting out there and 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 you can tell he's just wide-eyed and panicky finally he starts to just kind of settle down his breathing and I just had this moment I was just looking at, at my son and going man buddy I got you I got you I'm not going to let anything bad happen to you. I'm here for you. I got, I got this. I would die for you if that's what, what needed to happen right now without any question. Of course I would. You are a child of God. And he's proven that he would die for you. He's given up everything for you. You have a good father and you are his child, which means we don't have to go chasing our identity in any other place than in the arms of our father. Let's all stand, let's pray, let's worship together. Father God, we are your children and we come before you right now saying you're a good father, even in the midst sometimes of circumstances we don't understand, that panic us, that leave us just short of breath. Thank you for being a good father who has proven that you love us. You've given us an identity. We know who we are and sometimes we forget and we go trying to find our identity a million other places. So help us to turn our hearts back to you to see who you are, and to rest in your arms. In Jesus' name, amen.